Welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex once again with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, this evening being joined by the miracle of Zoom with uh, Peter Gorman, the legendary Peter Gorman in the great state of Texas. Welcome aboard, Peter. Hello, Bill. How, nice to have you have me. It was nice to have you as well, Peter. <clears throat> so uh, how's the weather out there in, where is it, Joshua, Texas? Have I got that right? Joshua. And we are right next to Godly. All right. And, this is like uh, all like great, greater Dallas-Fort Worth area, right? No, we were south of Fort Worth. Yeah. And we are in bucolic, Joshua. And it's, uh, it's really beautiful here. It was about 80, we know, about 55 today. And it's going to be about 70 tomorrow. Okay. So, you know, and, and then uh, two days from now, we're getting ice. Ice. Well, they say in Texas, just wait 10 minutes and the weather will change. Oh, yeah. I thought that was New England. Maybe, anyway, so did, did, did you have turkey last night? Uh, you know, I didn't have any meat last night. But I made a big turkey and I made a spiral ham and stuffing and mashed potatoes and, uh, you know, peas and corn, you know, carrot corn like we had as kids. And uh, pecan pies and a couple of uh, fresh uh, pumpkin pies uh, for which we took apart real pumpkins to do. And, um, and then everybody else contributed, you know, this and that and this and that. And yeah, so we had a wonderful night, except I just didn't eat the meat. But you prepared turkey last night. Yeah, I'm not yeah, okay. I'm not carrying it. It's just like, I would say four or five times a week lately i just i don't want meat i like the yeah, juice well, I, I, haven't, I, I haven't had a bite of red meat or poultry since i was 15 i ate cauliflower last night but anyway glad you're still doing the whole family scene out there in uh in in bucolic josh way texas so uh for people who are not familiar with peter gorman he's a uh Longtime uh, journalist, adventurer, naturalist, uh, writer, ranter, and raconteur, and um, most recently the author of Magic Mushrooms in India and other fantastic tales, which was uh, issued by your own um, imprint, Gorman Bench Press. And uh, it's actually the, what, the third in a series, which also includes... Um, Ayahuasca in my blood and Sapo in my soul, all of which are kind of uh, detailing your um, psychic explorations in various uh, <clears throat> exotic corners of planet Earth. They absolutely are. And the reason you, know, you mentioned Gorman Bench Press, let me just put in this. When you do a bench press, you're pushing stuff off your chest. And so I came up with the name because I was just like, finally got this MF off my chest. Uh-huh. Which I thought was a pretty cute name. And uh, tell you the truth, un unexpectedly, but very surprisingly and nice, all three are doing well. And I mean, I've just sold 40 copies of Ayahuasca My Blood this month. It's 12 years old. And so- well, glad to hear it. Well, why don't we start at the beginning then? Why don't you uh, tell us what, for those of us who are not initiated, what is ayahuasca? Okay. Ayahuasca is a drink 
that's utilized by peoples throughout South America. Not every indigenous group used it, and they use it in different ways. But essentially, it's, it's a brew that allows a healer, a cordendero, to access other levels of reality to help solve problems for you on this level. You, Peter Gorman, Bill Weinberg, might go to a cordendero and say, look, I don't understand, but every time I sell my chickens, I, I end up with a broken arm or I get robbed or I'm, you know, and the coordinator would then drink the ayahuasca, go into a dream state where he asks his hadios, his plant helpers, his, how, I don't know, angels, whatever you want to call them. Okay, like that's up to you. And he would come back in this particular one case, he came back when a man asked exactly that and Julio laughed and the man wondered, why are you laughing? This is a serious problem. I don't like this at all. And Julio said, well, I see the problem. The problem is that every time you sell your chickens or your corn, you go to this little cantina in Janeiro Herrera with the two steps. And then you get drunk. And when you come out, you trip on the bottom broken step. And then you fall and you hurt your arm or your knee or you get knocked out and someone robs you. So he said, I, I don't think anyone's giving you the evil eye. I think what's happening is you can either stop drinking after you sell your product or you can fix the damn bottom step. Okay, but the idea is that the Corandero is able to um, determine this by actually going into some uh, psychic state with the aid of ayahuasca and being able to actually visualize what was going on while this person was um, going about his routine and um, tripping on the step and falling down. Yes, and yes. that is, I know it's a stretch for us, but you could try to picture this. If you were visiting a foreign country and there was a, an apartment building that was a block long, for instance, you know, and except that the back of the building where you arrive is just a huge sheet, not bricks. What we're doing when you take ayahuasca, what a person is doing is they're pulling down that sheet to look into those apartments, just to look into those other lives, those other spirits who might be living right with us, but who are vibrating a slightly different pace so that we can't, we don't see them and they don't see us. But when right, you- the, I wish We should say that the, uh, the active ingredient here is yahe roots which is loaded with um, a substance called DMT. Have I got that right? Well, no. The, the active ingredient is that would be the chakura, the leaves. There is a leaf and a vine, and the vine is really the healer, but the DMT in the chakruna is, uh, or wambisa, different, two similar ones, but not quite the same. Is what allow you know what what allows you to pass through that vine? Right, through which, that which which one of those is the yahe? The yahe is the ayahuasca vine itself, uh -huh. and, that, and that's a male. Um, and uh, it's yeah. very powerful, just done by itself. There's no hallucinations or dreams or visions done by itself, but it's still a, quite a powerful. 
medicine. So some of the people in... Uh, All right, so hang on a minute here. So the, the, the DMT is not actually in the yahe. No. Some of the other ingredients. Yes. Uh-huh. yes. So what, what, what's, what's in the yahe? Some other stuff. Anyway, so... Uh, well, no, but it's certainly not hallucinogenic, but it is. It, it's stuff that opens you up. It's stuff that it's, it's the healer of the two ingredients. It is the healer. Well, a part of the DMT is also uh, involved in the healing process, I assume. That's more the visionary end of things. Well, it, yes, that's the visionary end of things. But the, the real deep work of ayahuasca doesn't begin until you are through the first 30 minutes of the DMT. Hmm. You got to struggle through that nonsense. And then finally, now you get to someplace really calm where you lie down and realize I have no arms, no legs. I can't move. Oh, nuts. I'm just stuck. And then you give up. And then the ayahuasca does its work. Uh -huh. The DMT is what teased you into it. Right, you experienced this for the first time back in 1984, I believe. Yep. Yep. And I had no idea. I'd never heard of it. I, I know the I letters were written prior to that, which were letters between uh, Ginsburg and William Burroughs. But I had certainly never heard of it, even though I thought it was pretty hip to things. I mean, here I was kind of about, without knowing it, about ready to jump into working for high times. But I was from New York City. I, I knew everything that was going on. And you, you were adventuring down there in the Peruvian Amazon, and uh, somebody introduced you to a corandero who, uh, who brewed some up for you, and you had quite the mind-blowing experience that changed your life. Yeah. I didn't quite realize it was going to change my life at the time. I um, was with two friends, and we met a guide, and I blew him off because I was... We'd already been traveling in Peru for six or seven weeks. And every time you got off a bus or a train, there were 50 people saying, I'll show you the best time. I'll show you the best time. And after a while, it just felt like, stop, stop. Right. Tourist parasites. Yes, yes, yes. <clears throat> and so I told this one guy in Peru, I said, stop. We're just going on the river. We're going to the jungle without you. So we ended up taking a riverboat out a few days. And we ended up in a town called Cana. And no one would take us out to the jungle. They were terrified of these people called the Matzes Indians, jaguars and tunchies, ghosts. And they would only go as far as the, their fields, which was like one kilometer into the jungle. And there we were like, we came here to go to the jungle. No one will take us to the jungle. Not only that, there were no boats out of the damn town for about 11 days. Well, the thing was, we got back to Iquitos and waiting at the boat was Moises Torres Vienna, the guy that Iquitos being the big urban hub of the uh, Peruvian Amazon. Yes. Yes. Uh, and not, uh, no, with, there's no roads that actually go there, accessible only by uh, by plane or by riverboat. Right, and that's yeah. what keeps it special. And uh, so there at the boat was Moises Torres Vienna, who I'd blown off twelve days earlier. And he said, now do you want to see the jungle? And I said, come on, we just came from the jungle. He said, no, you didn't. 
Nobody in the world took you out in the jungle. I know that. And so we hired him and he took us out for a few days. And he took us to something, you know, he kept looking around for ayahuasca for us. We had no idea what that was. But he thought it was important that we do it. And uh, so he finally found us a coordinator who had some ready made and, and we drank it with him. And I ended up associating, I'm not sure exactly the right word I should use, but associating with a large bird. And I, I'd never done that with an animal before. And I, I, it wasn't anything I looked forward to or anticipated or hoped for. Associating with, meaning you sort of um, merged in your consciousness uh, with this um with yeah, that's the best, and the best way I can explain it is associating. I, I suddenly was with the bird, and that was fine. Like, okay, I'm flying. This is cool, nice vision. But actually, but every time the bird moved a muscle, I could feel it, and it turned out every feather moved by different muscles. So it was like my whole body was jumping up and down because I I didn't have these muscles, and it was still you know like anyway. At some point, the bird tipped off the edge of the universe, go down to this blue and gold stuff, nailed a fish, and came up out of the water, driving down as fast as he could. I was scared to death. We were just going to die. And then he came right back up. And when he came up, he had a fish in his mouth. And I thought, holy mackerel, that is the weirdest, coolest thing. And then he ate the fish. He cut it in half and swallowed and when he swallowed, I choked because I couldn't get that fish down my little throat like he could. And that's and I ended up back on, you know, the front porch of the Cordadero going like choking, you know. And I thought, I have to do this again. I don't know what just happened. I don't know where that came from. But that is nothing I've ever thought about, dreamt about, heard about, lived, lived you know, watched on TV, nothing. All right, so this 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 was the first of many um, ayahuasca experiences that you've uh, you've had since then. You've been going out into the jungle regularly. Is Moises still around? No, Moises is dead. Uh, he died probably six years ago. Uh huh. But you've established uh, contacts there. You go out into the jungle and contact Coranderos, and occasionally you brought uh, you know uh, tourists in with you to um, have this experience. Well, the, the truth was, early on, I was a visitor. Then I became a little bit of a, a small-time explorer, let's put it that way. And I could only say that because I thought Moises, he, he brought me out to indigenous people, Mott says. And I picked up a couple of broken arrows that, you know, they shot monkeys with to eat, but the monkeys would pull the arrow out before it. They died and I pick up that broken arrow they would just leave it there and I brought back a bunch of interesting things or several interesting things and then I thought is Moises really I mean he's charging me three or four thousand dollars for a month is this are these just tourist Indians you know or is this the real deal and I had a light bulb go over my head and said you know what why don't you offer this material to the uh, Museum of Natural History, and when here they left, American Museum of Natural History here in New York, right? The biggest next to the yeah, Smithsonian, yeah. the biggest one. 
Yeah. And it took about a month to get a hearing of, of, of you know, with them. And it turned out a woman named Lila Williamson, who was putting together a whole of South American peoples, was the one who finally met me on the fifth floor, which is not available on any except one elevator in the whole place, which is really cool because you're given a secret elevator. Like, you, and you walk down the hall and all Teddy Roosevelt stuff. I mean, there are heads of Cape Buffalo and, and you know, I mean, it's horrible, but it's still his star, you know? And, uh, and you feel like, well, my gosh, you know, people live right in the middle of this and nobody even knows it exists. Right. You're like in a secret room, you know? It's like being a Bill Weinberg show with all those books behind it. It's like being in a secret place. And uh, when Lila saw the things I brought back, I thought she was going to laugh at me and say, oh, nice tourist job. Instead, she called in Bob Carnero, who was the head of South American ethnology there. They looked at the stuff and in five minutes said, can we have all the stuff for the new hall? I said, what? I said, How'd you even get into the Maya Rune and the Matzes without getting killed? They kill everybody. Well, it turned out that Moises had, had, was part of a fight with them, with the military, 10 years before I arrived, 12 years before I arrived. All right, so in, other, in other words, back in the 1970s. In 72, there was a big war. Well, it really wasn't a big war. It was four days. It took four days for the Peruvian government to just squash. But the Matzes were stealing people. They were stealing. They were raiding villages to get canoes and um, and machetes and axes and guns. And the government finally said, that's enough. That is enough. And Moises, who was in the military at the time, was part of the ground crew. And he said, uh, essentially he said, that he had never met such courageous fighters that they were shooting bows and arrows at people who were dropping bombs on them. And then he said, when I had an automatic weapon, I pointed it right at him. Pablo, a particular man who became really a good friend, simply looked at him and pointed an arrow and pulled the arrow back as if by the time you shoot me, I'll let this arrow go, you're dead too. And Moises said, my goodness. I just never saw courage like that. Even though Moises himself was indigenous, but from a different tribe, from Canibo. I'm sorry, from which? From the Canibo. The Canibo, yeah. Mm -hmm. in, in more southern Peru, more Pocapa, Canibo. Yeah, yeah. So Moises, he was blown away, but he had made friends. So the reason I was able to get in and out that river but it's because Moises had friends, you know? Right. And uh, right, this I is the, uh, the Yavari River, correct? Well, it's off the Yavari, it's the Galvez. The Galvez, which are the tributary of the Yavari. The Yavari at that point split. Well, the, the Yavari, in turn, being a tributary of the Amazon proper. This is uh, east of Iquitos, near the Brazilian border. And the further east you go, the deeper into the jungle you go, of course. So this yes, is like it, it actually is the Brazilian border. The border of Peru and Brazil is the Yavari River. Right. And interestingly, although hilariously, in, uh, in Peru, the Amazon River starts 
where the, the uh, Nauta joins the Ucayali. They call that the Amazon. Ecuador does not call it the Amazon until the Putamayo. Uh, no, sorry, until the Napo. The Join. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And Colombia this is, of course, mixed up with their with the bull that the infamous border dispute between Brazil. I'm sorry, between Peru and uh, and Ecuador. I imagine. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But then Colombia won't call it the Amazon until the Putumayo right, enters. Right. 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 And right. Brazil doesn't call it the Amazon until the Avari enters. Right. 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 This country's right. got its own. We 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 we. It's yeah, just yeah. hilarious, but it's it's fun. But the Avari is. Although I think if you look at most atlases or if you checked Google Maps, which would be easy enough to do, although I haven't, I think probably they start calling it the um, the Amazon where the Ukiali and the Marañón come together. That okay. would be, see, that because that's where Peru calls it. Right. And the Marañón technically comes from, not technically, it comes from Ecuador. So that's where two countries come together. The confluence of the two countries is what makes it international. Uh, that's been a political. Well, the, 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 the Napo is what's on the uh, is what's on the Ecuadorian border. The, the Marañón is coming up from from yeah, the right. south, the Marion, from the Peruvian yes. Amazon, from the Peruvian Andes. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I would say Nauta, but Nauta is a town, not not the river. The Marañón is the river, uh, and it comes up from the mountains where the Shuar, Hibero live. Um, and I mean, there's several different groups of them. So some are called Schwar, some are called Hebrews, some are called, you know, there's all sorts of different names. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Same. Um, but anyway, that the beginning of the work with Moises and then bringing material back for the uh, Museum of Natural History, I said, well, I'll give you everything I've got. There was one thing they couldn't take, which was an ocelot tooth necklace. Uh, that was gifted to me uh, because it was endangered. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the thing violated was, CITES. <clears throat> what? The, uh, probably via a violation of CITES, the International Treaty on um, Endangered and Threatened Species. Yes, yes. Yeah. So now, but I had it already. I wasn't going to throw it in the garbage. So I've, I've got it hanging on my wall here. And what's fascinating is no man, woman, okay, but generally men were the hunters, but woman too, some were. Uh, no, when you killed an ocelot, you know, a nice 25, 35 pound cat, big enough to kill you in a second. And uh, we'd come into camps and look for dogs, look for uh chickens, ducks, whatever was there, you know? And you would never hear them until you heard the as it was walking out. Like, just letting you know, I just took your dog. I don't even think about coming after me. <laughs> and, uh, but the ocelots, just like a normal house cat, only have four teeth that have any real definition. Thanks. But at the two fronts, Thomas, right? Right, 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 right. And so the necklace I brought in has got 76 teeth. Wow, that's a lot of ocelots. That means one man with a bow and arrow 
faced up to 19 over the course of his life. Wow. And which people made that necklace, Peter? <clears throat> no, those were the Matzes. Those were the Matzes. Okay. Right. Now, there right, are other people... the ayahuasca is generally today used by the mestizos in the Amazon. It, it, I imagine it originated from an indigenous people. Do you, do you know which one? No, the, the, in South America, in, in the Amazon basin, there is essentially no stone. Okay. So there are no hieroglyphs, there's no buildings that last more than 10 or 20 years. And there's no written language. So the written language began when the uh, missionaries came in. Right. And they began to try to take down phonetically words. But there is no, so the history is all oral. And as you know, you know, if you play ghost at a kitchen table or dinner table with three people, you could, one person, ghost is where one person says something and quietly to the second person and they repeat it to the third person right the otherwise known as telephone yes 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 all right but what is our understanding of uh, of where ayahuasca originated i imagine it originated among some indigenous group no it would have to be because it was there prior to the spaniards right but because there's no written language and because everything is telephone what comes out is that every group in the world claims they are the ones who found it. I mean, I, I know 12, 15 indigenous groups. Everyone is, well, we discovered it. We found it. My father, my grandfather is like, his oh. grandfather? <clears throat> it's like 80 years ago. What about you? Like, but they don't know more than 80 years ago. It doesn't go back that far. <clears throat> you understand? So you're, it's really difficult whenever you look into a question of generic, general legitimate history it's very difficult to pin anything down because of two things one the indigenous like any group when you study anthropology they will give you the answer you want and then you will give them the candy or the shirt or you know, whatever it is that but they want you to be happy with them and number two if they don't know they're going to fill in the blank Okay, so the uh, who are the ayahuasqueros that you go down and uh, and visit these days? They are mestizos. So uh, a couple of them have some Shipibo blood. A couple of them had Matzes never, to the best of my knowledge, I mean, I never saw the Matzes do it. And in reading literature goes back to 1650. Uh there's no record of them doing it ever. 1650, really? Now, which, uh, which record is this from 1650? All right, let me tell you. Yeah. There's, there is a series of books called Handbook of South American Peoples that was put out in 1947. It took 20 years to compile. And you can find it in the rare book library on, in, in your 42nd Street Library the rare book room, and you go all the way to the right and walk down halfway and look at the top shelf, and you'll find- yeah, this, who, knows, who knows if it's still there, because unfortunately they've been gutting their collection in recent years. But with that caveat, continue. 
Okay, with that caveat, you could look up uh, the um, you you could look it up on on uh, face on on the internet. Yes, okay? yes, of course. people. Now, what was interesting about the Mayaruna? Well, hang on a now, minute. So this this canned book of South American peoples in turn references some uh, original citation from the uh, 17th century. The entire series of books is based on every record for every indigenous group in South and Central America from the very first Spaniards that arrived who kept notes. Other people might have arrived but didn't keep notes. So from the first notes, the Spaniards left. And it is a fantastic record. Because the first 200 years, they've got etchings and you know, people drawing pictures. Of, and uh, interestingly, when they get to the Mayaruna, who are the Matzes, the Matisse, the Mayaruba, but all uh, one. Mayaruna being the larger language group of these various peoples, including the Matzes. Yes. Yeah. And they, it says, these Panoan-speaking people will need a chapter by themselves. All right, so Panoan, we need to make clear what these terms are. Panoan is like the larger language. The larger language, from, it's a language that's on the east side of the Andes Mountains. Well, all these Not languages are on the east side of the Andes Mountains. So, so <laughs> Panoan would incorporate Mayaruna, which incorporates Matzes, is that it? Yes. In the same way that, you know, Indo-European incorporates Romance, which incorporates Spanish kind of thing. Absolutely. You, you're gotcha. Yeah. Never okay. saw it clearer than that. Right. Yeah. And uh, so they have their own separate four or five pages. And among the four or five pages for these people are, well, they don't make canoes. They can't make bows and arrows. They have no song, no dance, no spirituality. They have no rituals. All they do is hunt, eat, and steal. And hilariously, they were still pretty much doing that when I first met them. I mean, they weren't far from that. I mean, I was invited twice to go raid for women. And I just, I couldn't, I sounded great, but it was like, we were really going to kill people and get women? Like, I, I just, I couldn't, couldn't. All right, go. I'm taking this with a proverbial grain of salt, but... Um... We should, this is a natural lead in to, the, to your second title after Ayahuasca in My Blood, 25 Years of Medicine Dreaming. You wrote, Sapo in My Soul, the Matzes Frog Medicine. So it was through the Matzes that you came into, uh, into contact with Sapo. Sapo is actually the Spanish word for toad, even though it actually doesn't come from a toad, it comes from a frog. But uh, the, the Matzes have probably got their own word for it. Why don't you explain to us what, the, what, what this stuff is? All right. Let me explain first why they misnamed it. There was a, the uh, Sullivan Institute of SIO, Sullivan Institute of Linguistics. Um, after Summer the war, Institute of Linguistics. Oh, Summer Institute, yes. Sorry. Summer, Summer, Summer like the season. S. Summer Institute of Linguistics. Okay. Yes. They went into the largest Matzes camp, Buena Lomas, after the war in 1972. And part of the deal 
to keep calm was the Summer Institute was allowed to come in there and try to write their language down and translate the Bible into the language. Right. We should so, make clear Summer Institute of Linguistics is actually uh, an evangelical group. They're the same people today. They're online uh, under the, the name Ethnologue. Uh, but they, they're their big um, mission that now they're doing translation work all over the world and mapping every you know language right down to the smallest little language, the most remote parts of the world, um, configuring out where it's where it fits in in this giant language tree that they've assembled. It's actually pretty amazing work. But their original myth um, mission was kind of a sinister one. They wanted to be able to translate the the Bible into every language on Earth so as to do evangelical work. And actually, you know, convert every every micro ethnicity on Earth to evangelical Christianity, <clears throat> and not to be a conspiratorialist, but they are also a CIA front. Well, yeah, the, the, the book to read on all of this is "Thy Will Be Done: Nelson Rockefeller and the Conquest of the Amazon" by uh, Gerard Colby and Charlotte Dennett. Really excellent in-depth book, which explores this whole uh, period of history and how the oil industry and the oil interests and the uh, the evangelical groups are kind of working hand in hand to to conquer the Amazon. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. So so uh, so summer goes up there, and I have a copy right. of the up, up there meaning up the Yavari River. It's up the, you know, go, yeah, up the, up the Alto Yavari where the Avery splits into the Galvez and the Alto Yavari. Right. It, at the biggest camp, uh, Buena Lomas, which had almost a thousand people living there. That's a lot of longhouses. And it was fascinating in that the, um, let me catch this thought, let me catch this thought. Uh, Fascinating. He takes a he takes a drag off his cigarette to help his brain cells. <clears throat> and is about Look, to sometimes I go a bit afield, and I I have to go corral myself. I apologize, and I hope your readers understand it's it's what happens. I'm old anyway. Um, so the Summer Institute of Linguistics went up the Alto Gavari and found, takes another hit off a cigarette. <clears throat> oh, right, we wrote a victory. Hold on. We're going back there. to Sapo. Sapo, so we, Peter. Think, Sapo. right to it. This is Sapo. That was why it was such a yeah. stretch. It was a big corner to turn. The, the, the Summer Institute's first dictionary was a small stapled book uh, and in it they had pictures they would have a canoe and they would have the matzah's word for the canoe and then they would have an english word for the canoe and then they would have both of those words phonetically okay and then when it came to sapo there was a picture of a generalized amphibian and it was so generalized that you can't tell if it's a frog or a toad and so well, it's the kind of hard to distinguish a frog from a toad in a uh, you know a, a rudimentary drawing obviously but yes anyways, so, so this was the source really of the confusion 
the misnomer is on the on, on the summer because the masses were taught in Spanish. Ah, that frog is called, you know, uh, sapo. Right. That's, the right, says the, the actual word for a frog in Spanish is rana. So it's actually um, a, it, it, the substance comes from a rana, a frog, rather than a sapo, a toad. But uh, okay, this has all been a very long linguistic aside here. What actually is the substance that the uh, that the matzes call sapo? How do they gather it? How do you uh, administer it into the human organism? And what does it do to you? Okay, a frog. They will bark. And you'll gather them after they bark. They bark right, something. What, what, what kind of frog is this? Phylomedusa bicolor. It is available in good aquariums anywhere in the United States. They run about 78 bucks to 150 bucks. Um, it's a tree frog. It crawls beautifully, very slowly with large hands and feet uh, up the tree, although it can be surprisingly quick when it's frayed. Um, when the frog has is in a fear position, it gives off what you'd call, I don't know what a better word for it, a sudor, a sweat. A little bit of ick all over its back and, and legs. A secretion. And, okay, a secretion, but that sounds almost vulgar. Um, and the animal that's trying to prey on it will find itself frozen because the secretion is very powerful. Now you can't call it a venom because it's not administered by fangs, but it's a pretty much poisonous secretion to most animals. So, and, and the lead animal that will go after the frogs are tree snakes, constrictors. And very few constrictors have any venom at all. And those that do are rear fanged and they are usually green rear fanged snakes so what you have to do is the snake lures the frog into its mouth at that point the frog is no longer looking at the lure which are the eyes and his tongue and it could snap out of the hypnosis and it gets terrified and it gives off this sweat which goes immediately into the mucus of the snake's mouth and freezes the snake it can't move you freeze it for 30 seconds. And the frog then walks out backwards and walks away. Right. All right. So if sometime, the frog, sometime in the, the... I'm sorry. Go ahead. If the frog is 10 seconds late, if the frog was frightened yesterday and doesn't have much potency today, the snake is going to get it into its throat, at which point the frog is just squished. Right. So... Um, all right, so so sometime in the ancient past, the Mat says indigenous people uh, figured out how to um, uh, capture these frogs and gather the secretion, and what do they do with it? Okay, so what you hear this? Sorry, listeners. That's the frog. Now, you can't just go look for the frog. You'll never find it. It's up in the trees, 30 feet. It's two inches by three inches. And it blends in with the leaves. So you got to wait on calls. When the frog calls, you go there. You have some live person. This is why the indigenous are so good at collecting them. 
the trees that they live in hang over the river. When they have babies, the babies are in a, a package that drops open into the river. And those tadpoles will make it to the to, to shore, live. The others just get killed by fish or drown. It's, it's a cruel world out there. So the mod says would climb a tree and they wouldn't pick the frog up. If they do, they'll frighten the frog and the frog will give us best medicine. What they would do instead is they'll cut off the branch the frog is on and bring that down to their canoe and then they'll bring it back to camp. And the frog, the frog doesn't jump off the branch? Nope. Why doesn't the frog, the frog jump off the branch? I think the frog's happy. I don't know if the frog is thinking that much. He might be just be dreaming. But their eyes are open all the time, so it's hard to say when their eyes are closed. Right. In other words, but they, they, they bring the frog back unmolested to camp, and then what do they do with it? And then they, put, they, they leave the frog on the branch. They put four sticks in the ground. Imagine four sticks about 18 inches apart, two at the bottom, two at the top, so you have a nice little square. And then they will go to a plant, any sort of plant, rip it open, grab the uh, fiber, roll the fiber into string, tie one end of the string onto each of the four sticks, tie the other end of the string into a slip knot. And when that's all done, they then pick up the frog and quickly put it in the slip knot. And now that's been touched, it's frayed. And it's giving off the sudor, the sweat. And you collect that, taking a stick and rubbing it gently against the frog's sides, its legs. Sometimes they'll tease it with, uh, you know, putting a stick in the very front of the nose of the frog in one of the nostrils. It is kind of cruel. It looks like a green trampoline. I'm sure it's not comfortable for the frog. Frog bondage. Right. But after seven minutes, the frog is, the slip knots are undone, and the frog is replaced on one of the trees that it likes to live on. All right. So the frog is released unharmed and goes along its happy way. Although, although, you know, this is a place I, I've dealt with lots of groups who are animal lovers who tell me what a cruel thing I'm doing and promoting. It's like, Number one, I'm not promoting. I mean, I wrote the book, but that's 15 years after, 20 years after I first did it. I mean, I held off for a long time. Uh, but if the frog didn't end up giving the medicine, it would have ended up in soup. Would have ended up in what? Soup. Oh, they make soup of the same frog, do they? No, they don't make soup of this frog because it provides the medicine. Oh, right. I gotcha. The other amphibian. Every bug, every worm, everything goes into soup. Okay. All right. But, so then they've um, they've accumulated a uh, a batch of this sudor, this uh, this this secretion, and uh, what what do they do with it? Okay. You collect a little bit on this pointy stick, and you put it on uh, a, a, um, a piece of hardwood. It's probably anywhere from five inches to 12 inches long. And you scrape it on that. And you keep collecting. And if the frog 
has not been frightened. It has like a, like a snake with plenty of venom. If a snake hasn't eaten in two weeks, you know what I mean? It's got full venom. If the frog has full secretion, you, it produces a full half an ounce. It's a lot. And uh, that is then dried. And the way it's dried in the Amazon is generally is put over a fire two or three feet above the fire. So it dries out, to, I mean, to prevent it from getting too humid and, and getting bacteria in it. It also prevents cockroaches and water bugs, which will eat 20 sticks in a night. It's too hot for them. So they won't come and eat the damn sticks. And there's lots of cockroaches. Okay, so bugs. then what do they do with the sticks? You liquefy it with a little spit. Then you take a piece of tamashi, which I'm is sorry, a vine. A piece, a piece of what? It's called tamashi. It's a piece of vine that is used to tether uh, uh, beams to, to... All right, a piece of cord, basically. And then what? Okay, and then you make burns in your arm. One or two burns. You heat that tamashi up on one end, very hot. And you go, and you burn yourself, or you'll be burned. And then the skin is scraped. And then the liquefied frog sweat that you liquefy with with your spit is now applied to that burn. I mean, to the you know the, the space where the burn was, the subcutaneous layers of flesh. Right. And that, in thirty seconds, you will feel your heart begin to race, your head gets hot, you clench your stomach. You want to vomit, you might vomit, and it depends on how big the dose or how it affects you on that given day. You know, you can end up crawl in a ball, just crying and, and hoping, like, when is this end? When is this end? It's a very painful experience. What it, what's the first going time on? You did it, the first time you did it, you uh, lost sphincter control, shall we say. You shit your pants. I had no idea what it was. I just pointed the medicines above the above the fire, and Pablo immediately brought this one down, spits on it. I have no idea what's going on, and he grabs a stick and he puts it in the fire. Grabs a stick from the fire, and grabs my forearm and hard. I mean, I, this little guy had me in a vapor lock, and he burns two holes in in my forearm on the inside, and he applies this medicine to it. And the next thing you know, I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna die, I'm gonna die. <laughs> I really thought I was gonna die, it was horrible. Um, but I didn't die. In fact, I woke up four hours later, three hours later in the hut, They had, somebody carried me across the camp into the hut, my brother-in-law and I were using, and I woke up and I heard voices I looked around, there's nobody here. I looked across, I was listening to two of Pablo's wives. They were across the camp. And it absolutely sounded like they were right next to me. And I saw, I looked up above, I heard some noises and I realized I'm listening to monkeys. And I looked and I saw monkeys inside the tree, a whole band of 14, 15 monkeys, like three families. It was like, holy shit, I can't do that. 
how am I looking inside the tree? And the next couple of days, they went hunting with me. And I almost kept up with them. I wasn't hungry. I wasn't thirsty. And so I wrote notes like, what the hell is this? I had no idea what this was. And I brought them to the museum. All right. So in other words, after this um, very spasmodic, difficult experience, you, uh, you conk out. And when you come to, for several days after that, you've got very, very heightened sensory perception and, uh, and, and a lot of energy. You don't need to, to, you don't need to eat. Right. You went trekking in the jungle and you could keep up or almost keep up with the matzes and, uh, <clears throat> and, and et cetera. Well, it turns out now it was studied. There was a fellow named Victorious Farmer. Victorious Farmer is the fellow who found serotonin in the stomach. And he was nominated for Nobel for that. He was a far reconnaissance from Italy, and he got my material. The museum would spread the material out when someone brought material back to those people studying arrows. We get notes, my notes, on where I collected these arrows. So they would know if we're in New York, we might look down in the archives and see material of interest. And Ersparmer had been interested in these particular frogs because he thought he saw bioactive peptides, peptides that would building blocks for proteins that would interact with the human body perfectly, like a lock and key. And, but there was no known human use until I brought my story out. And when I did, the museum got him to my notes and he got in touch with me and said, through a translator, essentially said in heavy duty, 80 year old Italian, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> All right, so he was talking to you by telephone uh, from, from Italy? With translators. Yeah. Uh -huh. He eventually, within a few weeks, he had medical people come to my apartment. And I was served, Sapo, and had medical equipment, heart, pulse, uh, temperature, to monitor my physical activity during the 15 minutes of acute experience. All right, so you were administering Sapo to yourself in your apartment on Manhattan's Upper West Side at this point. Upper East Side, yes. Upper East Side. Mm -hmm. um, it was just this amazing thing. All I can say is, I mean, it, the simplest way I explain it to people is when you apply this medicine, you have little Miss Pac-Man running around your body, gobbling up toxins that you've had collected, that you have collected for 30, 40, 50 years. In my case, 70 years. Red toxin number 43, red dye 43, they, they haven't even allowed that in candy in 40 years. But since it never leaves your body, it's in your body. And it's cancerous. It was in every candy kids my age ate when I was a kid. And this is gobbling that up. And the reason it's very painful experience is, I know my image of Miss Pac-Man gobbling it up, but I, I, I don't know how else to explain it. She spits it into your bloodstream to be eliminated through your kidneys. But when that 
poison is put in your bloodstream rather than simply sitting in a sack behind a, a fat cell, it's active poison. So you've got a lot of toxins running through your body for 15 minutes. And it's really, they poisoned you to begin with, but now they're re-poisoning this time around. And those 20 years of car fumes, even if you only get one year's worth out on a given time, Man, you didn't collect them one year in five minutes. You collected them over a year. You're eliminating all of one year's worth in two minutes. So you know it's going to hurt coming out. And you okay, know, and it, all of this, all of this science was determined by the uh, the Italian guy, Vittorio Esparmer, mm -hmm. and his first major paper. He had written papers about the potential of this, and then in, he wrote in. Um, toxicology in 1992 a peer-reviewed paper he and his partner Melchioni and several others their abstract says incorrectly you know anthropologist Peter Gorman because I was not an anthropologist uh, described the event of utilizing this medicine this with these characteristics this paper will try to determine whether or not any of this material could have occurred because of what is in the frog material. And he explained every goddamn thing I said. Oh, there's Cerulean did that. There's Sobogene did that. There's Brady Connie did that. There's, you know, he just went over each one. And he talked about, and your adrenal axis is working for seven days, which is why it feels, you know, you're strong for a long time, but it's not adrenal, it's adrenal cortex. So it's, you're not on fight or flight, you're on an adrenal trip. So you have this wonderful, I'm tired, rest five minutes. I'm not so tired, I can go. And for a couple of days, what a help that is in the jungle. You know, to be able to, if you rest all night, you've got to carry more food for the morning, and that slows you down. If you could take a bunch of this before you go, for people who depend on it, um, if you can clear up junk, maybe your arrows are going off two inches to the right, two inches to the left. Two inches to the right or left means nobody ate in your house tonight. Right. So if you could steady that hand just a little bit. Right, right, right. All right. So in other words, this is uh, survival stuff for the Mott says. Mm -hmm. this is, uh, we're talking Darwinism here. So um, your second book was about, um, was about Sapo. Sapo in my soul, the Mott says frog medicine. But maybe you might also want to tell us a little bit about Nunu. Nunu is a snuff. And it is a very powerful snuff, and it's included in the Sapo book. The two medicines, Sapo and Nunu, are used so often in conjunction uh, by the Matsez. Now, I can't tell you different groups might not use them in conjunction, but the Matsez certainly did. Nunu is, is a fine, it's a snuff made of uh, Nicotiana rustica, which is a the large leaves of black tobacco in the jungle, 
and they're put on a small barbecue, usually split palm, 12 inches above a very small fire, maybe maybe three foot long pieces, like your desk, whatever your desk is, they make a split palm fire, you know, a barbecue that big, and they put these leaves on them, and a very small fire underneath, and it dries the leaves out to where they can almost be powdered. A different person, a different man, although I'm not, women couldn't, don't necessarily, are, they're not restricted. It's just that there are not very many real hunters among the women. They're actually probably better than the men, but <laughs> the men take the credit, let's put it that way. Uh, so a second hunter would take a clay pot, put a large piece of coal in there, and then put scrapings from the inner bark of the cacao tree, chocolate tree, in there until it turned to ash. Then a wife, in my experience, always a, this time is a wife, takes the ashes from the cacao and the dried leaves and puts them in a long bamboo uh, section and with a grind, like a, a stick grinder on it and then grinds that, grinds that, grinds that, grinds that until it's very fine. Right. And then she'll pour it through. If you were there, she would say, give me your shirt right now. And she'd pour it through that shirt. And then she would regrind it. And then she'd ask me for my shirt. And then maybe somewhere along, they've got something else, you know what I mean? But they'll put it so it's fine, fine, fine. It really, it's the finest powder I've ever seen in my life. Okay, and then you snort it. No, a hunter blows it into your nose. Okay. It's got to be a stronger hunter than you. Or with a, uh, a hollowed out uh, bamboo shoot or reed? It could be a reed. Uh, here, people have all sorts of reeds for sale. If you looked up uh, Nunu uh, Tepes and, uh, you, you know, you, you can go on the internet and find a thousand. Are you still there? Yeah, I can't see you anymore, but it doesn't matter because this is audio. Okay. Um, the reed could be a half an inch wide and two feet long. Okay, so uh, somebody blows it up your nostril. Right. And, and then feels, what happens, Peter? It feels like a shotgun shell in the back of your head, absolutely burning, you cripple over, and after 30 seconds, that's gone, they blow it again, they blow it again, they blow it again. Four, six, eight, 14, 35 times. The Matzah's men can do three, 400 times each in the course of a night. Uh, most of the gringos that I serve and myself, we take four, six, or eight. Um, and that is like, you're now just leaning over a fence, drooling, you know, for an hour. But when you come clear, it improves your eyesight temporarily. And it improves your, your, the, the, your ability to relax so that your arrows, you know, are, 
more on target. Mm -hmm. So it's it, that's why it works in conjunction, you know, with the sapo. Gotcha. And um, so again, about uh, heightening your um, your sensory perception and uh, and stamina and so on, so as to make you a more effective hunter to be able to bring home the uh, the bacon. Yes, and just imagine if you were a man with no wife, but you just live with a sister. Maybe you just bring home one monkey every couple of days, you know, and that's plenty. Or, you know, because they're not fishermen. So you can't just say, let's go get fish. They just, they don't do that much. Really? They, the mock says don't eat fish? No, they'll eat it, but they didn't have canoes until 1994. Huh. They didn't know how to make them. They had canoes, but they would, each village had its own person they stole and blinded and called him Mateo, my uncle, and that person was then led through the woods, not, not a whole blind, but mostly a stick in the eye that burned their eyes out. And they would then make the canoes blinded by feeling the trees. Now they were blinded so they wouldn't run away. Uh-huh. The village might need five canoes every year. And each one with just making them with a machete and fire is going to take a month, two months. So they didn't want these Mateos to run away. So it really was fairly amazing. I'm sorry, who, who are these Mateos? They were canoe builders that the Matzes scouted out from the rivers nearby. And then they stole them. Turn them into slaves. Oh, I gotcha. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. So, uh, <clears throat> otherwise, from the Matzai's point of view, they would say, We gave them a good life. They have a house across the river. Women are sent over regularly. They've got a couple of people bringing them food every day and talking with them and having a good time and washing their clothes. So from the Matzah's point of view, it's like, well, they're just helping. Right, and these people would be mestizos or people from a neighboring indigenous people uh, or, uh, or what? The only ones, I only knew three of them in my whole life. So there might have, I don't know how many more there were, but I only knew three, all were mestizos. Mm -hmm. And they made beautiful canoes. What the Matzah's could do was make wonderful floats. Um, what do you call them? Uh, I don't know, uh, Peter. What do you call them? Well, they call them rafts. Sorry, I'm saying floats, but rafts. Rafts, yes. <laughs> and so if a whole village has to move, they'd make a raft out of balsa that was 30 by 30. And you could put everybody in that village and every thing they wanted to go with them on that. But they could only go downriver. The canoes allowed them to go back upriver. Right, right, right. <clears throat> That was, okay, I mean, so uh, all of this is related in your, your first two books, Ayahuasca in My Blood and Sapo in My Soul. And uh, now you've just put out a, uh, a new effort entitled Magic Mushrooms in India and Other Fantastic Tales, which has actually got a couple of stories from the uh, Peruvian Amazon, but also as the title... Um, relates uh, about your adventures in India and Morocco 
and uh, New York City. Yeah. So you want to this talk a little was, bit about your about your about your new book, Peter? Sure, I'd love to. And uh, and Christmas is coming up, so everybody should buy like six hundred copies. Right, of course. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying, you know how. Even, even if you return them the next day, at least I'll look good on the numbers. Anyway, um, I over the years, I've done some really fascinating stories that I actually think still have legs. They're still fun a long time later. Uh, Bill? Well, you did the, the India story and the Morocco story you did for uh, for High Times magazine back in the 90s because I edited them when we were uh, working I, I together, ed editing each other's work. I was going to get to the part that one of the reasons some of those stories still have legs is because Bill Weinberg put his tools to them. There you go. <clears throat> and, you know, cleaned them up, told me what to get rid of or just got rid of it for me. No, it was and pretty clean copy. It was pretty clean copy. So Bill, uh, Bill was a great editor. Anyway, so but when I, I have a blog and Hilariously, there are three stories that are hit like 30,000 times each. And all the other stories are hit like 200 times. The three stories that are hit so much are Magic Mushrooms in India, which I was sent to India by Omni Magazine to, in, in, to, to interview um, a fellow named uh, Ram Whitaker. And he was the snake man of India and, and, and a, a brilliant, brilliant guy. What does that mean? He was the snake man of India. It meant that he had helped make the snake skin trade illegal. Uh -huh. Oh, very good. And he at the same time recognized that the Irulas a pre-Dravidian tribe or indigenous group in southern India, when the snakeskin trade was illegal, he just suddenly had 30,000 people out of work because they were the people who were famous for catching the snakes and skinning them. And so he became a snake man when he came up with the idea that like, you know what? I have to replace their money with money okay so, so he was a uh, a conservationist and a herpetologist uh yes. so people were were using the snakes for what people were hunting the snakes to uh to do what with them they were just selling snakes for skins mm -hmm. people loved boots people loved you know i mean i had a woman who was a, I had a girlfriend for four years uh who had an elephant leg ashtray Next to my the couch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> hey, like as long as we're gonna kill the elephant, we might as well make an edge. So there are people who love snake skins. You know, 30 skins to make a jacket or or, or boots or and and they, but they were killing 10 million a year, which meant the rodent population was completely insane. Right. Which right, meant that right. the grain population was purely infected and people are getting sick and you know, the well, whole what part, what part of India are we talking about here, Peter? Well, he was working initially up in Bombay, but the Irula were down in Madras. In the very southern point 
on the Indian Ocean. And so he moved from where he was down there. And his father-in-law, Zafar Futielli, who was the secretary for the Natural History Museum in Bombay, bought him five acres of land. And he raised some money and he came up with the idea that he could raise money, additional money, if the bus, tourist buses would stop by and watch the Irula collect snake venom from things like the crate, the saw scale viper, you know, the, the cobra, okay? Very, very dangerous snakes. So the Irula, who already know how to kill snakes, were taught how to collect the venom. And they still captured the snakes, but they collected venom. But the difference was now, once Rob got them on that program, they walked through town with a white bag on their back. And instead of people thinking, oh, there's white trash with dead snakes. They were like, oh, my God, hopefully he doesn't open that up right here because it's got 20 poisonous snakes in there. and They're going to kill us. So the Irula immediately got. Are you still there? Yes, yes, yes. Keep going. All right. Uh, so this, well, you, you, just to make clear again, the, 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 this group is a uh, is, is basically a, a tribal group, an indigenous group in southern India. And they're pre-Dravidian, which so means they're very old. Pre-Dravidian, yes. And the Dravidians yeah. are the ones who were there before the uh, the Indo-Aryans arrived. So we're going back like many thousands of years. Yes. Right. And they are, uh, I mean, I don't, I spent three weeks with them. I don't know. But I thought they were a wonderful group, really nice. Uh, and and so I was working with Rom and I and I was covering, this is what I was covering for Omni. That All right, he so had, hang on a minute, Peter. What did what did they do with the venom? What 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 was the, the purpose the venom of was sold, the venom? The venom was sold to the Halfkind Institute. I'm sorry, the what institute? Halfkind. I'm not sure if the pronunciation is right. Half kind or half kind institute, which made anti-venoms. You take the venom and you inject horses slowly. And over the course of a couple of weeks, you re-inject. Re right, so other, it was being used for, for, med for medical research. Right. And if, no, because that becomes the venom. I mean, you, you immediately, there's no anti-crate venom. So in six months, you've got a supply that'll last the country two weeks. So, you you know, you, you which they never had before. And snakes are a problem there. But without snakes, the rodent problem, especially when you have rice fields, remember, you got to remember, a rat eats half its weight in grain every day. So if you got 10 rats in a field, eating a half a pound a day, you know, after a year, how much grain have you lost? If you have 10,000 rats in that field. All right, so rather than uh, actually capturing and killing the snakes now, they're uh, capturing the snakes and collecting the venom and then releasing them? And, and then marking them with a heavy-duty, uh, rain-resistant, water-resistant black marker. And as long as that mark is still on the snake, you can't recollect it. 
you have to wait. Iran invented this idea. You wait until it shed its skin so that it will no longer have that mark that you put on it. Which gives now, it time to build up more venom so you're not depleting it of its venom. What, more than that, you're giving it almost a year. So you're giving almost a year of having a, a regular life. Right. They'll rebuild the venom in seven, ten days. And is this but, program still is this program still going on today, Peter? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Under under the auspices of what organization? To the best of my knowledge, it's still just Ron Whitaker and his ex-wife. Uh-huh. But they've gotten. I mean, they've gotten grants from everybody and his brother. Rom also on that five hectares that his father-in-law gave him. Oh, this is in Tamil Nadu state? Yes. Yeah, southern India. And Rom began collecting crocodilians. And he built pits for them. And when I was there last, he had 13,000 crocodilians. He had 21 of the 23 species in the world there to protect the genetics of crocodilians because he valued them so high, so highly, sorry. Now, you just walked around and you got to this place where you had all these pits and they were separated from other pits and there's water in them and what the Irulas did was they collected from every field, not only the snakes, but all of the rodents. And they sold those to Ron Whitaker, who then fed the crocodiles with those rodents. All right. What is the name of this, uh, this, this tribal people, Peter? Say it again. Irula, I-R-U-L-A. Irula, uh-huh, okay. And so Rom was trying to come up with a kind of a holistic thing of we need crocodile, crocodiles around the world for various reasons. And yet some are so dangerous, like saltwater crocodiles, that it's hard to justify, you know, letting their bloodlines flow free. And, but he had like... Um, not, what do you call the uh, monitor lizards and things like that, you know? Yeah. Um, he had big, scary stuff there. Okay, uh, so you, originally you went to this part of the world to write about Ron Whitaker for Omni magazine, but you yes. also wound up taking magic mushrooms and writing about it for High Times magazine. Well, I, yeah, but I, when I talk about Ron and his project, it was, I'm so excited. Anyway, I, I thought Ron was great. His wife was great. But, uh, Okay, yeah. So I took a break. And after I did nine days of interviews with Ram, he was fed up with me. So I took a break and went and interviewed his father-in-law, Zafra Futielli, Secretary of, you know, Museum of Natural History in Bombay. And he was up at that time in the, at Cota Canal. Um, an old English colony with some English schools, etc. You know, a very fancy place. And and I took photos of of, of Zephyr 
cantering on his horse and uh, for his Christmas cards. And he made me speak at the Rotary Club there, which was totally embarrassing. Um, and then... Oh, there being where, Peter? We are we still up in, uh, in Mumbai now, or are we down in Chennai? No, we're, down, we're up in Kota Canal. Where's that? Oh... Uh, Spell it, Peter. K-O-D-A-I. K-A-N-A-O. Oh, here we go. Coda Canal. Okay. I get sorry. So you're down in Tamil Nadu. You're near you're near Chennai, near Madras. Gotcha. Okay. Right. Now I'm with you. Keep going. So we are having a great time up there with him. But I just realized, you know, Ram is bored with me. His father and fucking law is boring me. Everybody's boring me. I'm just going to do a fun story. And so one day, I'd met a couple of hippies up there with tea rooms and stuff. And so one day, or when we say up there, we should make clear: Coda Canal is up in is up getting into the hills. Yes, we're we're a thousand feet above sea level. Two thousand feet above sea level. And. That used to be a place, because of its height, that fed the plains of Madurai, which was the breadbasket of all southern India. But when Kota Canal got too crowded, people had cut all the trees. And they replaced them with trees like eucalyptus that did not hold water. And so during a dry season, the plains of Madura didn't get any water. It was a disaster. And then during wet season, the rain came down so hard because it wasn't modified by the trees in Kota Canal that it just tore off the topsoil. Right. And so the entire breadbasket of, of a billion people was nearly a starchless junk and so i had asked zaffer I, I made a joke i said zaffer could we could we just collect garbage and make it like a mile high and five miles wide and in five years green is going to grow all over it i don't care if it's plastic or not you know greens rodents birds everything's going to and then that would feed and Zaffer thought, you know, you're a complete idiot, Gorman. But <laughs> I tried anyway. So I ran to a couple of hippies. And then I ran to a woman not far from the small hotel I was staying at up in Kota Canal. Very old lady. She made some sounds. I had no idea. I came over like, what are you saying? What are you saying? I don't speak your language. I don't. You know, I'm, I'm, I speak on this one, Whitestone. And I don't even understand me half the time. Whitestone, Queens. Yes! Yes, we're both Queens boys. We're the killers. Uh, so, uh, so Peter, you know, cut to the chase, magic mushrooms. It's the title so, of the book. Let's get to the mushrooms. The lady, when I walked over to see what she needed, because I didn't get what she was saying, she takes out of her bosom 
this piece of semi-wet newspaper, opens it up, and it's full of magic mushrooms. And I realized, oh, she's asking, do I want to buy magic mushrooms? I didn't. Which, which of course, you did. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't know there were mushrooms out there. I thought, what the hell? You know, I can't go wrong here. And so I bought a dozen or a dozen and a half. And then I hired a guy named BJ, who was one of the hippies I met. Uh, I'm sorry, he was one of what? One of the hippies I met. Ah, yes, yes, yes. The, but he, uh, he was like an indigenous Indian hippie. He was a sadhu, so to speak. Yes, and he yes. was at one of the places where he was having tea. And I asked him, I said, well, can you take me you know, on a walk? What kind of walk? <laughs> well, you know, just uh, I want to see the, the show of the rainforest up here. Because I know most of it's down, but we're a little bit left. Can we get there? I, we can get there, definitely. Anyway, so we arranged. I said, well, okay, when do we leave? We leave at 4 o'clock tomorrow morning. 4 o'clock tomorrow morning? Where do I meet you? Well, I really won't get up at 4 o'clock, but you should get up at 4 o'clock, and we will meet later. So well, just tell me where we're freaking meeting. I'm not going anywhere. Oh, okay, people can read all of this in the book. <laughs> Anyway, so you had a uh, a very interesting walk in the jungle with your with what your sadhu guide. What a hell of a walk! This guy, it was the most profoundly insane conservation walk you ever heard. I walked in muck. I walked in in in, in human waste half the day. And it seemed like that. I mean, maybe it only was half an hour. I mean, there was a golf course where the wild boars were chasing us and the police. And VJ is explaining he knows a worse course because they have jaguars on it. You know, I mean, it was hilarious. So why were that, the police chasing you? You were they, they didn't I mean, you weren't actually doing anything illegal apart from having already eaten the mushrooms. But but we didn't belong to the club. Uh, oh, 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 we're trespassing onto the golf course. Well, yeah, a golf course is a good place to avoid when you're tripping, if you ask me, anyway. But, anyway, but I, so I then you've got, uh, you've got this charming story uh, about Morocco, the road to Katama, where you yeah. went uh, for Mar Morocco's hashish harvest, which I also edited back in the day when you wrote it back in the 90s. And you did a marvelous job. And yeah, I mean, in uh, Keef is what's called, you know, marijuana up in the, the reef. In the, the, the reef mountains of Morocco, which is the, the heart, the, the cannabis heartland, cannabis producing heartland of Morocco and one of the most and, poor and inaccessible parts of the country. And we should make clear that Keef is not actually um, the bud itself, but the, uh, the THC crystals, which are taken off of the bud and and collect it as a kind of a fine powder. The stuff they make hashish out of, but they also smoke it directly as keef, as the the powdered um, the powder that is shaken from the buds. And we also need to make clear that the people of the reef have been independent for thousands of years. Well, de, de facto they, independent, so to speak. Hold on, they are willing to go along with the Moroccan government basic rules 
But when the Moroccan government periodically has a crackdown on the chief, then it explodes into rebellion. Then you explode into rebellion because they are not giving in. So these are hardy people with an independent streak. And so mostly Berber people, right? Mostly Berbers as opposed to Arabs, right? Right. Yeah. Well, a fellow comes into the office at high times one day. He says, My name is Stick E. Roken. I was like, Oh my God, a fucking other asshole. And Sticky Roken tells me, you got to come with me. I said, where? We got to go to Morocco. I said, what are you for? It's season for harvesting. Freaking ash. I'm a great photographer. You got to come with me. I said, well, anyway, since I was executive editor at that point in high times, I actually could write a check or easily get a check passed, you know, through our uh, money people, Sheila. And without questions. So I talked to him and he said, look, he had his friend and he had connections and he could get us to right people, right place. We're going to come up with the best story in the world. And, and I wanted to go to Morocco. So I bought a hook, line, and sinker. And we bought tickets and we went to Morocco. And the problem was that his friend wasn't really there. And we ended up staying with his friend's sister or something like that for like one night, but then we were invited out. So we rented a car and blindly decided to drive up to the reef. I had no idea that after the first 25 miles on the, on the hills, you're now 500 feet off to the left or right. I mean, to the right is, is, is a pure mountain. To the left is 500 foot drop, and you have an eight foot wide road. And it is two way, which meant half the time you're backing down an eight foot road. It was a scary, and we, he, he's like, hey, Gorman, I'll take the, uh, I'll take, the, you know, the wheel. I'm like, bullshit. If we're falling off, I'm killing us. I am not going to let you kill me. So, <laughs> Somehow we didn't end up dying. We ended up in a wonderful place and scary as shit. And we asked somebody like, and, and they, they offered to like rent us a lot of pictures of all their teeth. Now they had 20 grades, as you pointed out, of, of the teeth. The Quattro Zero was very fine ashes. Oh my God, that was really good. Triple zero was good, double zero, single zero. Then you had to mix it with a little motor oil to make uh, hash oil. And then you had some plain junk. Um, but the guy took out 50, 100 pounds for us. And they were nice photos, sticky broken took. And we had one small issue. We had one can of motor oil. And it looked like motor oil, and I didn't want people to think it was motor oil, even though that was sometimes covered with that. So I put it on a slant on this table where we arranged all of this beautiful hash. And then we started taking photos, and it was great, and we were laughing, and we were high as a kite, and the guy left, and he's going to bring some friends back in, 
And you know, all we gotta do if we want to leave is close, and he's already been paid, everything's good. And then God damned oil tipped over. And the, the, the hash oil, which is you know a very painstaking thing to produce, and it's very uh, very expensive. And <clears throat> right, we just cost the guy three, five, ten thousand. I don't know what we cost. We couldn't do anything. We had no money. So at my suggestion, we ran. But to help clean up things, I had to wipe it off the tablecloth and eat it. So in other words, you were getting, uh, you you were running for your lives while stoned out of your mind. Okay, Peter. <laughs> That's pretty much what happened. Well, you got to read the story to see what happened. I'm just, it's in the story, but you asked me like, you know, you edited it. So, you know. All right. So, uh, Peter, we should, we should wrap it up pretty soon. Why don't we talk about um, your, let's just bring things back to uh, the Peruvian Amazon now. You're about to actually head back down there. You're going to go uh, revisit the Matzes on the Rio Galvez, no, for the first time in many years, now that you're um, approaching 70 years old. And um, uh, tell, tell us about that. What, 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 what uh, inspired you to take on this journey? What's the purpose of this trip? What are you gonna be doing down there? I'm, uh, I'm already 70, I'm almost 71. In the last 10 years, I have had more physical ailments than, than I could have ever imagined I would have had. And I worked very hard to try to maintain a balance. And I don't think, I, uh, up until COVID came, I was taking four groups a year out into the jungle. And I was- Let's take ayahuasca. Was, well, they drank ayahuasca twice, but they also walked through the jungle. They were in canoes at night. They were collecting frogs. Uh, we were collecting plants. We were collecting wild foods. Um, and I just can't walk that much anymore. And it really upset me. But I've got three stories I want to do before I kick it. And I don't want to kick it for 30 years, but three stories I want to do. And I think I can. And one of them is I have taken two boats. I rebuilt two boats. You drive from, you take a boat out from Iquitos to Leticia, Colombia, about 40 nautical miles. Might only be 200 by air, but the 40 nautical. And then about 700 up the Avari, which is a very bendy river. So again, it might only be 200 miles, but it's about 700 by boat. And I... At the end of that is, I mean, I've been, Matzes are at the camp that I have in, uh, out, you know, in the jungle. I've got five families living there. So I'm with the Matzes three months a year until COVID hit last year. But I haven't missed a year with them. I'm with them three months a year and we share food and blah, blah, blah. We're, we're good. But to go back to the old timers on the Galvez and the Altaiavari requires a boat and requires some backing. Okay, so you've been you've been visiting Matzes communities, but ones which are a little bit closer to uh, the civilization, not not the, the really remote ones. Not not yeah right. Since about ninety six, it's been the ones closer to me. Yeah, Cl uh, closer to you, meaning closer to the to the Rio Amazonas. 
closer to the the, the, the traffic like, crowds. We're, right, we're two and a half days away from them rather than six days. Gotcha, gotcha, yeah. And it, that sounds different, but when you're shopping for six days worth of food, it's very different than shopping for two and a half days. Right. So um, it's not the physical distance, it's it's you know often the mental and emotional distance. Um, so this would be my third boat. I have got an 84-foot boat that's a beauty. But I now I've got a videographer and her small team. I've got a botanist and one person plus five of my people. So where did where did you get the botanist? From Mark Pluckin. Uh, a botanist affiliated with a university or what? Well, he's uh, somebody getting a PhD. Uh-huh. Now, I haven't spoken to him yet. I was told I got him. But, you know, it, it might end up not being from him. It might be from uh, Wade Davis or, you know. Uh, these are all some of, some of the big names in ethnobotany. The, yeah. And these yeah. are friends and 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 they totally recognize me as the most worst amateur they ever met, but with a good heart, <laughs> trying my best. All right. So, so what's the purpose of this trip, Peter? What are you going to do? Three things. One, there has never been a book about with trip notes that cover more than 35 years of the life of a single river. What's going on? Who's living there? What are they doing? Have they changed since 1996? Uh, do they depend on doctors or are they still depending on curanderos with medical, you know, leaf and medicine from the trees? Um, are they cutting trees now? When I was there last, it was very little because the mahogany, swamp mahogany, they cut 50 years earlier you know, before I even got there. But maybe they found some other trees they want to cut. Maybe maybe this disc goes all along the several miles. Or is it still remote? Is it still a place out there where... Anyway, that's number one. Number two, I've been asked to collect plants from the uh, Botanical Research Institute of Texas. And for EOP, which is the Peruvian government plant investigative place. So collecting plants, some of which I've collected before, and they want to see all the same plants available or as the current changed, as the river changed, so that those are no longer available. And number two, um, to see has that plant medicine been passed on to the third, you know, to the grandson, granddaughter, to the third generation. And then the number three thing is to be open to the possibilities of what happens in the middle of nowhere. And I know that sounds like, oh, aren't you so fanciful? And you're right, it does. But... Remember, I collected sapo. I collected frog sweat. I collected something that's now being utilized by several dozen pharmaceutical companies trying to race each other for medicals benefits out of this. 
And that might happen again. And if you ask an exploration, me, maybe you ask somebody else, you get different. If you ask me, well, it's an exploration. So you just BSing yourself. It's like, no. I've got a crew of 17 that include five different areas of study. And we all have good eyes. They're going to be open. Maybe I see a plant that's interesting, but somebody else sees a woman who escaped after 30 years of being, you know, a Max's wife. Now, and my wife did that years ago, or the woman who's Max's wife did that years ago. So I want as many professionals as I can. 84 foot boat is pretty good. We can do good. And you're and you're leaving when? The trip starts. The, we were entered the boat from January 6th. The trip starts January 15th. And there is something, and I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, Bill, because it's kind of gross, but there's something like I don't know, the Gorman Expedition 2022 on one of these fund us sites. Ah, uh, well, I suppose yeah. one can find all of this through your blog. Tell us about your, uh, what, what's the URL for your blog, Peter? The Gorman blog dot blogspot.com. The Gorman blog dot blogspot.com. If I got that right. <clears throat> Yeah, that's perfect. And I don't know what this thing is. Let me is double check here. Up. Let me double check. <clears throat> I don't think I wrote about this yet. But nicely, we just got 30,000 from one guy yesterday and 1,000 today. Well, great. I'm glad that somebody is actually able to uh, shake down the internet for money. I've certainly never figured out how to do it. Yes, the Gorman blog at blogspot.com. The Gorman blog, punto, pot, you know, point, blogspot.com. So there you go. <clears throat> and uh, people want to uh, read these um, fantastic tales, Mushrooms in India, and other fantastic tales with, uh, in addition to... Uh, Okay, that charming, here's some, that, that charming here's story about mushrooms in India. You can read about being on the hash trail up in the Rift Mountains of Morocco, and there's uh, some other stories from the Peruvian Amazon and some stories from New York City. Interesting stuff. You can also uh, order that. How can how can you order that, Peter? Punch in Amazon.com. Books by Peter Gorman. There you go. There you go. And you can also uh, check out uh, Peter's earlier works that we've been discussing ayahuasca in my blood 25 years of medicine dreaming and sapo in my soul the mat says frog medicine so uh where are you going to be writing up uh, an account of your uh of your journey back up into the alto gallery oh i see i've got three already right from my trip in 1988 in 92 and 94 no, but for this upcoming trip, are you going to be writing up an account of it uh, that oh, people can read? I will. I'll publish a book because I think, I think it would add. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think it would add 
for those few people who are interested in, in monitoring, I don't know of anybody who's ever written about, like, here is the story of this river over 30 years. Or this river, yeah. be, meaning this river, meaning the Alto Yavari or the Galvez, which no, the Yavari, the Yavari, mm. the Alto Yavari, the Galvez, but the Yavari primarily because that's the seven, you know, miles, um, or five hundred miles, whatever it is. I think that's hello, Bill. Yeah, still here, okay. Peter. All right, no, my screen is black. I don't know how these phones work, so I'm sorry. I think um, I think it will be a unique addition yeah. to Amazonia, to the literature of Amazonia, to be able to read. Oh, wait a minute! This guy went, and the first time he went, he had no money, so he put shotguns up to people's heads and stole all their money. Not quite. Almost, and then the second time around, he repaid all that. All right. So, what was what, what? When did you first uh, contact Amat Says? Was that what, back on the first trip? No, no that was second later. Trip. Second trip, eighty-five. Eighty-five. Okay, so now it's uh, a whole bunch of years later. It's going to be uh, twenty twenty-two by the time you're down there in January. So uh, this is uh, a big cycle in your life that you're completing here, Peter. Yeah. Yeah. Can I die? Well, we uh, certainly look forward to hearing about it. Hopefully, uh, once you're back safe and sound in uh, Los Estados Unidos uh, de nuevo, we can get you back on the uh, the Counter Vortex podcast once again to uh, to debrief you about uh, your experiences. Con- uh, you know, with what the Mat says on the uh, Alto Yavari. Thanks, Bill. Peter, it's been you. really fascinating. All right. I hope your readers and listeners are still wide awake. Oh, I'm sure they're more wide awake than any. So any any final words for uh, <clears throat> for our uh, you know vast listening audience? <laughs> Yo, do you people understand that you are listening to the famous Bill Weinberg? Yeah, and the famous Peter Gorman. And that you are listening to a guy Every time I've seen him on TV, I'm like, oh, my God, he's so much smarter than me. I really TV? want to. I've never been on TV in my life. You're probably thinking of YouTube. Anyway. Whatever it is, but whatever. I'm let's not saying. turn this into too much of a mutual admiration society, Peter. Uh, in any event, uh, no, it's been really fascinating. Really appreciated uh, you um, uh, regaling us of all of this, uh, all these tales and all this information. And greatly look forward to hearing about your uh, your experiences once you get back once again. So, uh, uh, you know, um, Buen Viaje down there in the Peruvian Amazon uh, in uh, in January, Peru. In uh, Peter, thanks uh, for the job, Bill. And uh, once thanks. again, this has been uh, Bill Weinberg interviewing the uh, legendary Peter Gorman on the Counter Vortex podcast. You can check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the countervortex, join the resistance, and uh, rant on you all next time. Good night, Peter. Good night, Bill.